You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Hey guys, my name is Ryan. For those of you that might be new and the rest of you guys, great to see you this morning. It is a super Sunday. We're excited about that. My wife and I are going to be teaching a a class uh, after the service called Growth Track 101. If you haven't been a part of that, I want to encourage you to, to do that. Couple things. Um, that's actually at twelve o'clock, by the way, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it later. But as you walked in the door this morning, you probably got one of these invite cards. It's called "Unleashing God's Word in a Post-Christian World." Um, this is a special event. We've never done a conference like this before, and so I'm really excited about it. And I'm also nervous about it because I don't know how good it's going to go or what's going to happen. Um, but there's Pastor Mark Moore from CCV is going to be a part of it, uh, Pastor Chad Moore from Sun Valley, Pastor Mark Driscoll from Trinity Church, President Daryl Del Husay, Phoenix Seminary, President Mark Bailey, Dallas Seminary, President Mark Young, Denver Seminary. Um, why is this important? Uh, because in culture today, America is not a Christian culture, it's a post-Christian culture. And so we are post-Christian. It was once upon a time a Christian nation. Now it's a post-Christian nation. And so uh, Phoenix ranks as one of the most biblically illiterate cities in the whole country. Um, So it is really important, uh, grandparents, let me speak to you for a moment, that you uh, understand the cultural times are times and the timeless truths in troubled times and communicate the great importance of the authority of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the biggest attack in Christianity for the 21st century will not just simply be liberalism or um, some kind of gender revolution, it will be the authority of Scripture. And so my encouragement to you is that you understand that how important this is, this uh, unleashed event. And I want to invite you guys. We're not inviting a lot of churches. Uh, I mean, just the people of the church. But I want to invite you guys at North Valley to show up in good numbers at this event. It's a one-day event. It's about forty-nine bucks. Um, I think we're going to get Chick Fil A to sponsor the lunch. It'll give you a lunch, and it'll give you a lot of times to meet other church leaders, ministry leaders right here in the valley. Also, to hear what's going on in academia. Um, around the country, I mean, there are well-known institutions like scholars and professors like at Moody Bible Institute that are really teaching some things that are very contrary to the authority and the orthodox of Scripture, and this is happening around our country as a whole, and if the institutions go down and the ministry leaders go down, there is no authority in the preaching anymore because God's Word is cut and paste, copy paste, whatever you want. And so as a church, we're a church deeply committed to the scriptures. And so I'm kind of like the, the, uh, the prophet in our city kind of plowing ahead and trying to gather a bunch of people to tell them, hey, keep preaching the Bible. Keep, amen? Like, keep preaching the Bible. Is the Bible good? Let's celebrate the Bible. Yeah. So um, I want to encourage you. We're a church that cares about a lot of other churches. Uh, we don't like name tags or denominations on us, but we love all sorts of people in all sorts of places and uh, pray for other churches and other seminary institutions and denominations and all that. But we got to come together on the Word of God. And so um, that's what's so important. So if you're here at North Valley, you need to know we love the Bible. Um, more than Bible, we love the person in the Bible that is Jesus. And uh, we care for churches and want to encourage ministry leaders. So singles, this would be a great event for you uh, so that you can understand and you can see what's going on in our culture. Also, you meet other folks that are 
in ministry or out, out, you know, a part of other churches. Uh, for you married couples, this is a big deal so that as you're building a family, you understand the issues at hand with the Bible and this, the authority of Scripture. So I want to encourage you to come out. It'll be really sweet. So March 17th, you guys uh, grabbed one of those. If you would, show up. And uh, we have Phoenix Seminaries doing all the volunteers, so I don't need you to volunteer. I just want you to show up. I want to be encouraging. We're going to have a Trinity's uh, Church's uh, worship team going to lead worship for us. Uh, so it's really wonderful. It'll be a really exciting time. Okay, enough said about that. Let's jump into the, uh, this morning's uh, text. We're going to in Ruth chapter 3. And so here's where we pe- we're picking up. Let me help paint the picture of what's going on. This morning's message, I've titled it, Defining the Relationship. DTR. How many of you ladies have been in a relationship before where you're waiting for the guy to define the relationship? Raise your hand. It's okay. Lift him up. There you go. You're like, are you ever going to define what we are? Um, that, it takes a little time. You know what's really cool about this morning? Guys, be at ease. Boaz, the guy who's bad to the bone, the protagonist of the storyline, he's kind of dragging his feet. He's not going to define the relationship for a while. And so what we're going to see is the mother-in-law is going to get kind of, she's going to be like little matchmaker, and she's going to try to set this whole relationship up. How many mother-in-laws are in the room and uh, you're involved with the relationship? There you go. I see you. Uh, God bless the mother-in-laws in our, in, our, in our family. Hey, as a church, yeah, somebody's already clapping. Yeah. There you go. Well, um, what we're going to see is, um, let me tell you the story and just paint the scene real quick as to what happened with Ruth and Naomi if you're here for the first time. And uh, the storyline is, is that um, um, Naomi and Ruth, they were, at, they were in Bethlehem, or uh, Naomi was in Bethlehem at one time, but they'd spent 10 years in a foreign country called Moab, and it was actually a cursed place. And Bethlehem was the place of blessing. And she had, she had gone out with her husband to Moab, spent 10 years there, like wandering in the desert, uh, away from God's people and God's presence. And then she'd made a distinctive end because things just started falling apart. She lost her husband, her two sons, and she moves back with her daughter-in-law to the place of blessing, that is Bethlehem, and she begins a new life there. And God's starting to show up, and, and we're seeing God work, and we've seen uh, Boaz uh, meets uh, Ruth and Naomi, and uh, last week, I talked to you about how uh, Ruth was out in the fields and working, and then they had those sweet little Old Testament first little lunch date, you know? Boaz invited her in, and she had, they had lunch together, and it was a sweet little date. And not a whole lot of romantic things happened, but it was just a sweet little date. And so now, the problem is, is that the harvest is over. So there's no more barley harvest, there's no more... Um, wheat harvest. So Ruth is really in a place where she really doesn't have the chance to connect with Boaz anymore. Like their paths aren't crossing. And so how many of you have ever had a summer relationship uh, in your dating years where you were dating a girl and it was just for a summertime and then the summer was over and everything changed? Raise your hand. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that was cool. I, I was in Hawaii and I met this really wonderful girl. I keep telling you about all the stories of my girlfriends. You think I have tons of girlfriends growing up, but I really didn't. Uh, but there was this girl I met in Hawaii and we were there for three weeks. And, you know, I met her and then it came to an end and it was done. That was in high school. Well, harvest time is over for, for Ruth and now she's no longer getting the invitations to go meet with Boaz. And the mother-in-law is starting to get involved and she's a little concerned that maybe this relationship's not going to work out. So let's read uh, chapter 3. We're going to work through the whole chapter this morning. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? 
Let me stop right there. She's asking a rhetorical question. She knows that she should be involved. In fact, she should be involved, and here's why, because in that society, in that culture, there was arranged marriages. Um, I've got friends from India, and they, they have, uh, have experienced arranged marriages. That's where the parents get involved, and the couples don't even know each other, but the parents make a deal with the other family, and they choose their mate based on character and family connection and all these other things. Well, in this society, that's what happened, and Naomi feels the obligation to find her daughter a godly man, and that is Boaz, is what she wants to happen. So she wants this to happen, and then she continues on, that it may be well with you. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Boaz is a a distant relative um, that could serve as what's been called a kinsman redeemer. He would have the opportunity uh, to uh, help redeem and restore. So the idea would be is that in like uh, uh, if any family member was in a financial crisis or some kind of terrible situation that somebody when a distant relative could step in and they would take an obligation and a responsibility for that person in need. And that is in this case it is Boaz and so she has reasonable concerns I would say. But then she does something that's kind of interesting. She has some questionable counsel. This is where we see, look what she says, verses uh, 2 through 4. She, see, she says this, See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. And I'll explain these terms in just a minute. Um, she says, verse 3, Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lays, and then go and uncover his feet and lay down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, moms and grandmas in the room, how many of you would think that this is kind of questionable advice? Would you give your, your kids this advice? Like, hey, uh, listen, when your boyfriend has had a lot to drink, and he's been eating and partying all night long, and about midnight, why don't you just slip in when he's passed out, and just kind of lay down and then say, hey, what do you want to do? It just doesn't sound like good advice. It does not at all. Um, let's lay down a culture and a context of, of kind of seeing where we're at here. Winnowing barley, so back on the parent thing. So Naomi in my book right now doesn't get a gold star for the parenting award. She's not making a good decision here as a first glance. But I want to unpack it and help you understand kind of the culture and the context of what's going on. So the idea of winnowing barley at the threshing floor, this is an agrarian society. Boaz and his guys have been working for the harvest season. Now it's over and it's celebration time. So they brought in the harvest. A threshing floor would have been elevated above the fields and they would have gone and winnowed at night. That's like literally taking a pitchfork with the grain and the grasses and throwing it up in the air. And it was in an open environment and the wind would catch the chaff and the debris, and it would blow away, and then behold, the grain would land on the ground. So the winnowing fork, that's what, that's what they're talking about. And the threshing floor was just some big, large, smooth, uh, cylindrical area, and then the grain would pile up there. And it was like, it was all their annual profits, like all their proceeds. That's, the, that's everything they've got in these villages and in these communities. This was the epicenter of economic activity. So it was a great place. And so, of course, 
Boaz, the CEO of the small little company they're running, and all his employees, they're celebrating what's happened. They've got all their harvest in, and it's a party, it's a festival. The reason why it's so questionable, and commentators and scholars all go all over the place on this, is because what would happen, because these were dark days in Israel, some of the darkest, most twisted, perverted, and uh, promiscuous times. So um, a lot of times, especially the Moabite ladies, which, by the way, that's what Ruth is. She's a Moabite. She's a foreigner outside of the nation of Israel. They would come in and they would prostitute themselves and make money during these big parties and festivals. So you can see there's still question here as to kind of like, what is going on here? What is she saying? She's trying to help define the relationship. Guys, note to self is sometimes we drag our feet to define the relationship. And even from the very beginning in Old Testament times, uh, mother-in-laws can get involved and say, hey, we need to help define this. Um, I want to argue, though, that Naomi's advice is what I would call a godly gamble. It's a gamble. Because she could be, uh, Ruth could be accused of acting like a prostitute. And that's not at all Ruth's character and nature. She's not uh, sexually promiscuous. She doesn't want to sell herself out. She's a worthy woman, an integrous woman. And Boaz, an integrous person. And the idea of uncovering the feet, I was like, when I first took a look, look at that, I was like, well, gee whiz, this is bad advice. I hope his feet don't stink. I mean, go uncover his feet and lie down and he'll tell you what to do. I was like, what is this? This is questionable. Um, Here's what that meant in ancient Near Eastern culture. The idea would be is that the master would work, and then after his work, he'd be in his tent or in his quarters, and then the servants would come forward, and then they would lay down at their master's feet. And it was a sign of submission. And the, the kind of the ritual was, and the cultural expectation was, good masters would share the covers. And so she could lay down there. But let's look at Ruth and how she responds. Verse 5, So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. Ruth is incredibly compliant, unquestionably compliant. Um, Why? Because Naomi is a safe person and everybody needs safe people. Um, Ruth had already said, Naomi, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I'll go with you wherever you want. And so here's what we're seeing is this compliance is, note to self is uh, those of you mother-in-laws that have um, a godly heritage, you have such a platform and influence with your daughter-in-laws. You fathers, you have a great, uh, your kids and your uh, son-in-laws or daughter-in-laws, they'll listen to what you have to say. Ruth is going to do this and uh, you know, big question as to why would she do this is, I would say, from a cultural standpoint, because there was so much of the idea of the arranged marriage. So it wasn't a foreign concept. But today, in our culture, I'd say there's two pathways for marriage in today's culture. There's non-Christian dating and Christian dating. Uh, singles, this is where you really want to listen up. Uh, private, the idea of non-Christian dating is privately overseen by the couple. It means they just make all the decisions by themselves. They don't need mom and dad. Uh, for Christian dating and courtship, publicly includes family, friends, and church or a faith community. Um, Song of Songs, I taught through that uh, book of the Bible, um, did it in 13 weeks, and it's a wonderful picture of courtship and dating. 
Courtship is like, it, here, here's the goal. Uh, look there. The goal is to determine if the person is uh, God intends for you to marry. It's completely different than non-Christian dating. Non-Christian dating, the goal is undefined and often includes sexual contact of some kind. Um, it's very different. And it, let me just pause for a moment. As we're going to move forward in this part of the message, I don't want your guilt meter to go up and you feel bad like you did everything wrong, but I do want to expose God's word and God's ways, and I want to be the first to confess to you, I didn't do everything right in my relationships. I mean, you've been around North Valley long enough, you guys are like, amen. You know I didn't. Uh, but God's grace can change everything, and I want to show you non-Christian dating is the relationship is open, and they often feel free to see other people. In Christian dating, the relationship is exclusive and they're not free to pursue other people simultaneously. It's different. Parents, those of you guys that are getting teenagers, this is how you want to direct your kid. My encouragement is to direct them. Don't just go date around with no definition of what you're doing. Have a goal. Have a plan. Um, I want to encourage you as well uh, to warn you uh, in this. Uh, there's some research. I call this, this little section is don't try this at home. Uh, the cost of cohabitation. This is some research I found that I want to share with you. It was a, a gal that is not a Christian. Uh, her name is Meg J. She wrote a book called Defining Decade. And she advises the idea against sleeping together or living together before you get married. And her big reason why, she's not a Christian, um, but she says uh, uh, several things. But one of the biggest reasons is, is, is this, is... Um, if you get into a relationship um, and say it gets bad, it's abusive, or it's, you just find out it's not the right relationship, and you're living together and you share the same address, how long do you think it takes to get out of that relationship? Average research says that it takes about two years to get out of the relationship when you share a home together. If you don't share a home together, the relationship goes bad. On average, it takes about a month or two to get out of the relationship. It just makes sense that you don't live together and sleep together before you get married just on that principle alone. But I do want to say, I've got plenty of friends that lived together, slept together before they got married, and now they're married, and God's doing a great thing, and I praise God for that. Um, but as a pastor, when I'm doing uh, weddings and stuff like that, I tell the couple, if you're living together, I don't want to do your, your, your uh, ceremony. I want to encourage you to separate for a season. And if you choose to live by God's word and God's ways, then uh, I'd be glad to do that. Because here's why, too. It's not just, oh, it's a fundamentalist Bible guy saying this. It's also just common sense. Uh, here's what research says. Uh, the cost of cohabitation, there's increased infidelity after marriage. There's increased violence against the spouse if you're living together prior to marriage. Why is that? I think it's because if you don't learn how to work under the principle of self-control in the area of sexual intimacy, uh, then you won't learn how to, a ring on your finger is not going to change anything. Uh, if you don't know how to control your sexual desire or passions, then you're not going to know how to manage your anger. And I don't want you to get stuck. Uh, there's decreased employment for males as well. There's, uh, uh, the, uh, I, th I thought that's really curious as to why that's like that. Part of the reason why is in today's culture is there's 
I would say, an over-involved parenting generation. That I, I'm going to speak to you guys, those of you um, that have kids that are grown adults now for a moment. My encouragement to you is please be careful between the, the line between encouraging your kids or grandkids and enabling them. And that is a huge deal right now. We have what's called in our generation an extended adolescence where the young guys are in their 20s and 30s, but they're still acting like they're 16, 17, 18, and 19. And so what happens is, is the older generation has been too nice, in a sense, and not challenging the younger generation to get out of the house. So the young boys are living in the parents' uh, 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 basement, or they're living in a spare room. And then when they get a girlfriend, um, they let the girlfriend, like, take care of them. And, and, and so then you get a, a boyfriend who's asking the girlfriend to act like his mama. And, and that'll wear out any of you girls, right? Like the last thing you need is for your boyfriend or for your future husband to, to want to be like your, your mom, uh, to be a mom to, your, to them. Uh, there's a decreased employment for males. There's 50 to 80% likelihood of divorce than non-cohabitating couples. So what if you live together now you're together and you're married, I say, praise God. What if you're living together? My encouragement to you is to separate. And you can come talk to me and say, Ryan, I don't like your advice. And I'll say, okay, well, let's just look at the Bible. I love you, but I just want to be faithful to the scriptures. Um, but what if, you're, what, if you're, what if you live together, now you're married and you're a Christian? Praise God, God's at work in your life. I'm so happy for you. Um, but I, there, this is non-Christian research that just says, hey, there's a warning here. Now, let me give the disclaimer here in this research. This doesn't take into fact the extraordinary supernatural work of Jesus Christ in the life of an individual. This is research with people that don't know Jesus. So when Jesus is in the equation, the Bible says that with God, anything is possible. Amen? So if you lived together far before uh, and now you're married and you're thinking, oh, holy smokes, I got a 50 to 80% higher likelihood to get a divorce. Not so with Jesus. There's a game changer when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. My encouragement to you as we move forward is, is we're going to see this night progress in the storyline of Ruth and, and Boaz. And I've titled this little section called A Night to Remember on the Threshing Floor. Ruth makes a risky move. Let's look and see what happens in verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lay down at the end of the heap of grain, and then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At the midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. A couple of things I think is really interesting. Look at the text here. It's like, she finds out where he is. She goes to the threshing floor, huge pile of grain. There's all the men laid out, literally like spokes on a wheel, laid out. She's got to figure out which one it is. Where's Boaz? She's stealth like ninja approaching the threshing floor. And she finds Boaz, and then she uncovers his feet. So I'm sure he's like, what's that? My feet are cold. At my house, I keep it on 69. I try to keep it really cool, so I I sleep better. And if my feet were uncovered, I'm telling you, I'd feel it. So look what we see. At midnight, this is late at night, midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, it's like, shazam, there's a woman right there. 
any guy that is breathing would find this tempting. In the middle of the night, there's a woman right there at your feet. Uh, two, it would have been uh, really interesting because, uh, again, like many times the prostitutes would come in and be sleeping with the guys. Um, it was a harvest season. It was a party time, uh, celebration. Uh, but Boaz is different. He's got a high character, high integrity. He pastors his employees. And I don't think that's the case here at all. I don't think Ruth is making some uh, provocative proposition to sleep with Boaz. I think she's taking up the advice of Naomi and making a godly gamble that is very questionable. But she's trying to say, I'm available. Laying at his feet would say, I'm your servant. Do you remember me? Do you remember that you, you do have a, an opportunity to help redeem and restore my whole family? Um, one of the most uh, sweet times in my engagement period with Leslie was we were engaged. And then like, um, I think it was a few weeks before we were going to get married. She, we had uh, what I call um, uh, emptying the skeletons out of the closet conversation. Have you ever done that before? Raise your hand. You know what I'm talking about? You're sharing the dark, deepest and darkest secrets. Come on. Hello. Are we not transparent here? Yeah. I hope that you have these conversations. Uh, and what's hard is you get married and then, then you have those conversations? That, that's jarring. So we have this conversation I call uh, a weary night for the soul. And we have this conversation and she shares with me stuff I'd never heard before. And honestly, if she had shared it with me, I don't know if I would have done the engagement because it was just so much. And then she shared it with me and I felt like this is what the Lord said to me. I felt like the Lord said to me, Ryan, you're not perfect. And you need to extend grace. Give her the love and the grace and the mercy that I've extended to you, and it will restore and redeem her life. So I was like, all right, as a holy act of humility, I, I love this girl. My wife is beautiful, okay? She's a wonderful woman. But the things that I found out bothered me tremendously. And... Uh, I'll let her share her story sometime with you guys. Many of you guys have heard her story. But it took, uh, for me, I had to come to this place where I realized I had the opportunity and the privilege to help redeem and extend that same grace and mercy to her. So here they are. Look at Ruth's unusual proposal. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. See? And then she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She knows he's a redeemer. He can redeem and restore property. He can restore people. He has power, influence. And, you know, this uh, phrase, spread your wing over your servant, in some translations it says, you know, um, share the corner of your blanket. And it would be the idea of she would place herself in a position where she would make it known and remind him of his uh, responsibility as a kinsman redeemer. Still, this is very unusual. So there's no reason to think that, oh, this is just completely normal, completely. Um, four reasons why Ruth's proposal was unusual. Old Testament scholar Daniel uh, Block, this guy's probably the leading uh, commentator, theologian on the book of Ruth. Uh, bestcommentaries.com for you nerds that love to read tons of extra stuff and fact check me. Uh, that's where you'd go, bestcommentaries.com. 
But look at this, four reasons why uh, Ruth's proposal was unusual. The first was it was a, a woman proposing to a man. That makes it kind of unusual. That's not normal. I mean, I remember the, the night that Leslie proposed to me. It was a little unusual. I'm just joking. She didn't do that. But first service, got it real quick and laughed. But uh, I proposed to her. It was awesome proposal story. I'll have to tell you another time. But a woman proposed to a man. Uh, secondly, a young person proposed to an older individual. Um, she's young. He's older. She's probably in her 20s to early 30s, and he's in his 40s to 50s. So there's, there's an age gap there. Uh, additionally, she's a field laborer, and she proposes to a field owner. That's just unusual. Usually you don't get that, you know. They're jumping all sorts of things, ethnic classes, um, economic classes. And look, a foreigner proposed to a citizen. She's a Moabite. He's an Israelite. It's just unusual. Um, but God uses, uses these situations and circumstances all the time. Let's see how Boaz responds. Before you look in your Bible, in verse 10, we're wondering, how is he going to respond? She has made a godly gamble, pursued him in the middle of the night, laid down at his feet, and you wonder, is, she gonna be lo- is he going to be like, what are you doing, you crazy lady? You're here in the middle of the night. Uh, she could be taken as a prostitute. She could be taken as... Uh, a thief, a lot of times the guys would lay around the grain because they're protecting their profits. And so Boaz doesn't respond with anger uh, because he knows her well. Verses 10 through 11, and we're going to see Boaz makes a promise. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Uh, Ruth had a track record of doing good. She cared for Naomi. She cared for her mother-in-law. Ruth really wasn't after just trying to bulldoze and plow this relationship forward. She knew that there was an importance here. Boaz was a good and godly man, and that Boaz had the power to restore and redeem their family. And so he says, you know, he even notes, you didn't go after young men. These would be other guys that have been working in the field or uh, whether poor or rich. But Ruth has kind of been waiting. Uh, She was waiting for Boaz. Verse 11, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for you all, for all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. Ruth has a reputation. She's built up a reputation, and Boaz knows this, and there's no hesitancy for him to make a great promise. He will marry her. He says, I'll do it. But there's just one problem, verses 12 through 13. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, Boaz says, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So there's just a problem. It's funny to me, too, that Boaz has such a quick response. I mean, we're talking about it's at least midnight to 1 a.m. now, and he kind of has figured this out, even though it looks like he's been knuckle-dragging and dragging his feet a little bit on defining the relationship. She comes to him, makes a proposition for a proposal uh, to be married. He accepts, says yes, but then he says, wait, there is a problem. So here's what we see is, look what he says. Verse 13, remain tonight and in the morning, um, if he will redeem you, this is what I find really interesting. Look what he says, good. I'm like, I'm thinking if I was Ruth and this person just said this, it's like, good? Did you just say good? 
like good, like good as in what kind of good? Like good, you don't want to be with me? Like what, is, what does that mean? He says, remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, this other person could marry, swoop in and marry Ruth. If he'll redeem you, good, let him do it. But if not, uh, he's not willing to redeem you, then as long as the Lord lives, I'll redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So here's what we see is there is just one problem. The problem is, is that somebody else is actually in a better position uh, financially and economically and relationally to marry this young lady, Ruth. And so Boaz acknowledges that and say, we're going to have to wait. Um, it's funny when he says good, I think he, Boaz might have a little bit of a challenge of sticking his foot in his mouth sometimes. Maybe he was antsy and didn't know what to say, and he just fires off and says, well, good, it's good, you know, we're good. But everybody knows that Boaz and Ruth really do love and care a lot about each other. So what we're going to see in verse 14 through 16, here's what we see. They say goodbye before the sunrise. Boaz protects her reputation, verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it be known that the woman came, uh, let, it, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He asked her to stay for the night because if she was to send her off, then she could um, potentially be heart, hurt or harmed in some way. And then, so he says, stay here, but notice it's, the, the invitation is to lay at his feet. It's not to shack up and be in the bed together, but it's to stay in that place right there. And to send her out with, uh, could potentially hurt or harm her. And then additionally, he's protecting her reputation because it wasn't uncommon for prostitutes to come in and out during that uh, bar, uh, barley and harvest uh, kind of festival. And so you can imagine they had some good microbrews, or the Hebrews, Hebrews, get it? Hebrews. Uh, good microbrews there, good festival, good fun, lots of food, and oftentimes the ladies would come in and carouse and make a profit and, uh, for themselves. And so he's like, I don't want you to be mixed up with that reputation, so I want you to leave in the morning, but before the sun comes, and then he gives instruction to his employees let it, be no, let, it, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Um, he wants to protect her reputation. Verse 15 and 16, Boaz sends back provision. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Um, then she went into the city. And so here she is, She's before she leaves, uh, Boaz says, come here and let me load you down with some grain and some food to take home to, to your mom. And, uh, and so here we get, again, we get the Orange Theory poster girl. Uh, she's strong and buff, not the prissy, sissy little cheerleader. She's strong. She takes some food back. And it's an incredible blessing to Naomi from Boaz. Um, let's look what it says. And it's funny, look at the, look at the uh, verse 16, we're going to see Naomi's response. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? I can just imagine, she's like, how did it go at the threshing floor last night? And so look what we see. Then she told her all that the man had done for her, verse 17, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, and he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Here's a good man. He's caring for the mother-in-law too. Uh, Naomi's had a rough story. Uh, she lost her husband, lost her two boys. 
uh, when she first arrived in Bethlehem, probably about a year ago, of where the story takes place, she said something like this, once upon a time, I left here full and I've returned empty. She said, I'm so discouraged and depressed right now when she first showed up at Bethlehem. She says, don't call me Naomi, that means pleasant. Call me Mara, that means bitter. I've been going through an incredibly hard time. And what Boaz is doing is he's saying, look, my ministry and commitment to you extends beyond you, but to your family. A good note for blended families, a lot of blended families um, in our church, and uh, that we've got to build relationships beyond the spouse and into the whole family and be a person of blessing. And so what we see here is Boaz is, is in a sense, giving a gift to the mother-in-law, and he's picking up on the same language that she used against herself, and he says this, uh, verse 17, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. What Boaz is saying is, I want to make sure that even your, 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 your mom feels full feels encouraged. Um, that's the kind of uh, uh, parent adult that we want to be. That's the kind of relationships we want to build in our, our relationships with other people. Is seeking to fill them up, not break them down. And Boaz is doing that. He's um, really helping Naomi get a bigger picture of just how good God is. Verse 18, she replied, wait, my daughter, uh, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. She has a full confidence in Boaz. That's why I believe so much in Naomi, is that she really has a sense of understanding, a keen insight that maybe even the author of the book of Ruth didn't even understand fully. But Naomi does. That Ruth, uh, Boaz is an incredible man of integrity and that he's going to do exactly what he says. He's a promise maker and a promise keeper. So what we're going to have to do is next week we're going to have to learn and see how this turns out. Is Boaz really going to be able to marry Ruth or is uh, this other more near relative individual going to swoop in and, and grab her? And some of you guys might already have know the story, but I'm going to wait and share it to you next week. So let me give you some practical takeaways for singles. Um, how many singles in the room? Just raise your hand so I can look at you when I'm talking about this. All right, raise your hand. Higher singles. There you go. Okay, you can look around. It's okay. All right. Um, singles. Let me talk to you. Um, and those of you that are parents of singles, teenagers, or grown adults, let me encourage you in, in giving this kind of advice. I want to encourage ladies, feel free to go wherever godly guys graze. Uh, oftentimes, the idea is that we want to discourage women from taking any initiative in a relationship. I would say that's not really uh, biblical. Um, you're human. Um, in the Song of Songs, a great love story. I taught, again, 13-week series out of that. The woman does initiate in the relationship. It's reciprocal, back and forth. So, so don't, don't, don't confuse that. Uh, ladies, feel free to go where God, the guys graze. I said it like that because I thought it was kind of interesting. Is guys literally have, they're like cattle in the sense that they kind of have these patterns. They just kind of go to the same places, the same eating restaurants, the same uh, different hangout spots. And it's okay, single ladies, to go and to get in front of somebody like uh, a godly guy. Maybe it's a small group. Maybe it's a church gathering. Maybe it's a special event. Maybe it's a mission trip. Maybe it, whatever it may be, go, go there. It's okay. And, and it's in a public environment. That's a great thing to do. 
parents, I would encourage you to teach your young uh, daughters this. It's like, hey, build the friendship in a public environment and, and be with the other young, uh, godly kids. Uh, men, don't miss who's right in front of you. Boaz is kind of missing this. He kind of doesn't even realize that Ruth is right there. And Naomi's kind of got to speak up and kind of say it. And then Boaz is like, oh, yeah, I'll do exactly what you say. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, let's get married. So my encouragement to you men is don't miss who's right there in front of you. There, there could be some really godly folks right there in front of you. Um, stop, number three is stop investing into the relationship if it's not reciprocal. This is a big one. The idea is this is, uh, this is for singles, not for you married folks. You're, some of you married are like, yeah, yeah. Ugh. Reciprocate, reciprocate. Uh, what I mean by, for you singles, you do have an out now. And that's why I'm telling you don't live together, because if you don't live together, it's easy to break it off. If you live together, uh, you might be a year or two years before you get out of that. So stop investing in the relationship if it's not reciprocal, meaning like if you're the one giving all the affection, the care, the you know, kindness and all that, and the other person isn't, just take it as a sign as it's not working out and just make your exit. It'll save you and her or you and the other person a lot of heart, uh, kind of hurt and heartache. So stop investing in the relationship if you don't see it kind of going back and forth. It doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, even in the situation with uh, Ruth, she speaks up and, and Boaz wasn't doing anything. I mean, the harvest is over. He doesn't have a lunch date lined up. So who gets involved? Mother-in-law. And then Ruth goes ahead, okay, mom, I'll do it. And she goes to Boaz and has a big conversation, define the relationship. But Boaz reciprocates and says, I'll do exactly what you just said. That sounds good. Then he says, but it's good. And then he sticks his foot in his mouth and you're like, what are you doing? But my encouragement is stop investing in the relationship if it's not reciprocal. We see reciprocal uh, love and care between Ruth and Boaz. Um, stop investing if it's not equally yoked. What I mean by that is if there's one person in, in the dating relationship that is a Christian and the other one is not, it'll be like uh, the, the biblical paradigm, a picture, metaphor, is kind of like if you're trying to plow a field, there's two oxen and you've got a yoke, a harness over the two. One is a little tiny weak oxen and the other one's super strong you're not going to be able to cultivate and, and, and uh, till that field very well. It will tear up the harness. It will tear up uh, the mechanisms that's using to cultivate that field. It'll break it down and destroy it. And the same is truth is in single relationships when people are dating or they're trying to advance the relationship. If you have one Christian and one non-Christian, the biggest problem there is there's a huge faith gap. You're not on the same page. You're what's called unequally yoked. My encouragement to you is if you're single and dating somebody that is maybe a not a Christian, my encouragement is to get out of that relationship. That's a biblical mindset, a biblical understanding. Don't, don't stay in that relationship. Tell that person, you don't know, love, follow Jesus like I do. I can't be with you. For some of you, that's, like, that's really hard. Some of you are married to an individual that is not a Christian. What is your lot in life is to stay with that individual, pray for that individual, and make the best of what you've got. That's what it is. Marriage is a lifetime commitment. Uh, can God work in all of it? He can work in all of it. He can work in every plan that you screw up. God can still come in, swoop it in, and his providential grace just pour out on you. But there is a way to do it. 
that is the right way. And so we're going to communicate that. Unequally yoked. Don't be unequally yoked. Stop investing if you're not equally yoked. You've got to be together. Two Christians that love Jesus. Know, live for, know Jesus, follow Jesus, and you're both working together at it. So last but not least, I encourage you, let the obstacles in relationships serve as opportunities to test each other's commitments. So in every relationship, there's going to be obstacles. But don't see them as such a detrimental experience. See them as an opportunity to test the relationship. With, with Ruth and with Boaz in this situation is there's a big question. And if somebody else is closer, is Boaz really going to act and really going to try to swoop in and, and marry Ruth? And what we're going to see is that his character is consistent and that this obstacle is actually going to prove and serve as an opportunity just to show how committed he really, really is. So let me pray for us, and we're going to continue to worship through communion and worship together. Heavenly Father, I pray for everybody here today, Lord, as they're looking at their life and their relationships for married couples, would you bless and strengthen them, Lord, uh, to apply the principles being taught here and to communicate a consistent message to their single friends. Lord, and for all the singles that are here today, they just grasp and uh, hold on to a paradigm and a picture of what it looks like to live single, uh, Lord, and to... Um, uh, have a relationship with another godly person. We pray uh, for your ways and your blessing upon our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.